Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. So my objective as a parent was to produce someone who would do great things. And we used three fundamental things in that child's life that those things still are part of his life today. We wanted to raise someone who was intellectually ambitious. In other words, someone who could do well academically in school and make good grades and do well on test scores, but more importantly, could, could critically think. So the way he was raised was raised using the Socratic method. Secondly, we wanted to raise someone who was globally and culturally competent. Too many of us spend our time knowing about whatever side we pick or choose. We understand the country we live in, but we have no understanding of any other people, or the texture of anyone else's life. We wanted to make sure that he could do that. So very early on, we wanted to make sure he could speak a number of languages. He spoke four fluently to others' conversation. Thirdly, we wanted to raise someone who was a humanitarian, who understood that he was not the most important person on the planet, that his objective in life was to raise the level of society. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs, and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage, and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Are you enjoying today's podcast episode? I really hope you do. And I really hope you enjoy the fact that I have an amazing guest talking with me and having this great discussion. If you, as an individual, personally have your own podcast and maybe you want to have great guests on your podcast as well, well, I got a deal for you. In my description, there is a link to something called Podmatch. Make sure to join that link through my affiliate link so you can sign up to get matched up with other podcast hosts and podcast guests so you make sure you are never missing an episode without a productive guest to have an amazing conversation with. Podmatch is similar to any other kind of matching site for the most part. And it's super easy you, just $6 a month and you can have a guest for each and every podcast episode that is tailored to your specific topic. So again, join the link in my description and join Podmatch now. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 38 of the Purple Political Breakdown as we are going to talk about the role of parents in society. It should be a very interesting conversation not only for potential parents but current parents as well and there's a lot of I guess controversy on what a parent should be doing, the outlook of parents in current society, and there's a lot of ways to kind of go about that conversation. Of course, I'm your host, Riddell Lewis. I have my co-hosts, Paul and Jonathan, here today with me. How are you guys doing? Very well. Good. All right. And we got an excellent guest today in Nate Turner who is, uh, I'm going to read one of the statements of, uh, of his bio so people get a little framing of who this guy is. Uh, as 
one of the most entertaining and captivating renaissance people of our day. He's sought after by organizations and individuals worldwide to share their tools, techniques, and strategies to live life in the present with joy on purpose. The humanitarian propulsion engineer, college and career readiness strategist, TED speaker, and author's work includes the books Raising Su Superman, Stop the Bus, It's a Jungle Out There, Journey Forward, and The Amazing World of STEM. And that is my guest, Nate Turner. How you doing today? Oh my goodness. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. The um, mute button was was stuck. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, they say that I should do radio. I think I, I did pretty well right there. I think I saw. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start off by reading a review. Appreciate everybody who leaves a review. If you guys want to get shouted out in a future episode, make sure you do that, of course. And this is from, uh, I forgot to put your name down. I apologize. But you said, I'm not one for politics, but I came across this show and listened to a handful of episodes. It's really engaging, and you hear real topics, not the acts you see here in the news otherwise. I definitely agree that we're here to have genuine conversations, have solutions about some of the more important issues going on in society. Now, I'm going to actually skip what you need to know, the current events, and go right into a deep question. I'm going to ask all of you guys to answer, of course. And this is called Deep or Deeper. It's another subtopic that we have on the show. And the question for all three of you here is, if you have a dream while you're in a relationship and you dream of sleeping with someone else you know, is that a red flag for the relationship? So, uh, Jonathan, I know you, you had some interesting things when I told you about this earlier. What, what do you think? Um... I could kind of go either way. Um, I would say, like, you're not... I suppose I should clarify. This is like a dream when you're asleep, right? Yes, not a daydream. Not, it's okay, dream not a day. Okay, because that's like two totally different things. Um, dreams you don't necessarily have uh, full, complete control of. And so, obviously, you're not, like, intentionally desiring, like you can have some pretty wacky dreams and I don't think that correlates exactly because dreams are obviously representations. Um, and the people in the dreams are not always like correlated with exactly the same person in reality. Like, uh, if I have a dream with my, that and my brother's in it, he's not necessarily representing my brother, but he can be re representing a brother like figure. So if you have a dream, and it involves a woman, it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, that particular woman. It's just your love interest in life. Uh, so you could probably, if your girlfriend asks you, that's how I would spin it. <laughs> you know, I don't know, like, how, and like, if I am 100% on board of that explanation, uh, I would say it's certainly if you begin to act out on those dreams, then maybe <laughs> that is a really big problem. Mm, all right. All right. Paul, what do you think? I think anything can happen uh, as long as you don't commit yourself to it uh, outside of your dream. Then, uh, yeah, I think it's not much explanation needed for it. No. Mm, okay. All right. What about you, Nate? Um, I'm the guy who's been married for 30 years, so I'm going to tell you that I think it means absolutely nothing. It's a dream. 
you have lots of dreams and every dream you have has has no bearing that there's something you actually do it's a dream mm. i don't know i'm not a guy who interprets dreams so maybe you need to talk to somebody who interprets dreams but in my in my humble opinion i don't think it means anything it okay. could just mean the last people you had a conversation with was the person that that you just dreamt about that happens oftentimes okay all right i'm gonna take this one step further and i'm gonna end it here Right. I would like to congratulate Mr. Turner for 30 years of marriage real quick. That's amazing. Thank oh, yeah, we, we all want to get there. I, I definitely agree. My so, parents just celebrated their 29th anniversary yesterday. So they're congratulating up there. Respect, respect. They're old. Hey, 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 hey. hey. I'm just kidding. I'm old, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to attach this one caveat to it. And I'm going to hear what you guys have to say. So let's say you dream about sleeping with your best friend's wife. Does it still have no value or is there still no red flags? It's just a dream. Okay. Well, I would say as long as your best friend's name isn't Jesse, then then you're in the clear. But if it's Jesse's girl, then there might be an issue. That's a song reference, but. I think some people will get it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. I, think some people will get it. I know this song you're talking about. I got you. I got you. So, so let me ask you a question. You. If, you dream, if you dream you're drowning, does that mean you're going to go drown? If you dream you're, you're jumping off a cliff, does that mean you're going to go jump off a cliff? If you dream somebody shot you, does that mean you shouldn't go outside because you're going to get shot? It seems to me you're taking this huge intellectual leap that a dream means you're going to do something that's detrimental. No, I'm, if you dream I, you're the king, are you the king of a country? So, are you going to be the king of a country? I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, what spurred this question is I was watching a TV show and the situation actually happened. And one thing that I do think that is interesting when it comes to dreams, because you can kind of characterize it as something that means nothing and it's just something that is a reflection of maybe events that have been going on. But I do think there's another aspect that could be argued that it could be an inclination of your truest thoughts. And if that is the truth, and I, I think it could be determined based on who you are, obviously, if that is the truth, and you're dreaming about sleeping with another woman, especially a woman you know, maybe a woman in this scenario in the show, this the, the wife was dreaming about sleeping with a co-worker and her marriage was also rocky. So it was just an interesting thought that, okay, is this how she truly feels considering she has this dream about this co-worker that she's attracted to? So I don't think it necessarily means nothing, but I it's hard for me to say it. It absolutely means nothing. I think it's definitely contextual, but I think it was a, it's an interesting thing to think about, for sure. Can I can I can I um, can I ask you one one question? You didn't answer my question. You just avoided the questions that I asked you, which is: if you dream you're a king, are you a king? If you dream you jump off a cliff, are you going to jump off a cliff? You gave you gave what you said context to it. Um, but I'm asking you if dreams do mean something, if we are to interpret dreams, it seems to be that the dream interpretation should be equal across the board. You, you, you gave qualifiers for your dream. And I'm, I'm asking you 
if, if don't we look at all the dreams the same way? Or do we only qualify the dreams that, that you specify as being somehow different? Right. So uh, this wasn't my dream. It's a dream on a TV show. <laughs> but as for the question, I disagree with the notion that you interpret the, all of them the same. I think they can be interpreted differently based on the dream and based on the situation. And I think if you dream of a scenario that obviously doesn't exist, it could be an inclination that this is a scenario that you want to happen. I, I've I've seen somewhere when people kind of dream of a situation where obviously death is looming, it could kind of in, uh, it could be interpreted on that that individual is probably maybe having a very bad circumstance in life at that very moment. So I'm not saying necessarily it's always means something or it even sometimes means something, but I think there may be an argument because there's no true answer or de definition on what exactly dreams are. But I think when it comes to your innate consciousness, because it's connected to that, I think you can argue that sometimes it can be your truest desires. So it's not always reality, but sometimes it might be what you truly believe. So that's a, that's my interpretation of it. All right, all right. Well, we start off with a brain uh, spinner right there to kind of get people thinking, of course. Hey, don't worry. Uh, just because you have a dream, you don't have to have a midlife crisis just because you have a potentially suspect dream. You all will be good out there, of course. So we're going to dive into the main topic of the day in terms of the role of parents in society. Uh, this is a very important conversation because there's some confusion, I believe, in a lot of people on what they're supposed to do, be doing as a parent and the outlook of how parents should act based off different maybe political scenarios in general. So we'll start off with uh, letting Nate kind of describe what do you believe is the role of parents in today's society? I think the role of parents is the same role as been since parenting was invented, which is to be the tree for fruit. I mean, simple as that. I think the responsibility for a parent is to mirror the kind of human being you want the planet to have. The kind of human being that helps the, the greater good. If you want something more sophisticated, answer it can certainly have a dialogue about that. But simply put, I think parents are the tree and the children are the fruit. And someday the children will be trees of their own and they will produce fruit. And the question is, what kind of fruit will we produce? Will it be good or bad? So I have a question for you, Nate, if that's okay, Riddell. Sure. Yeah, uh, and it, for me, uh, it's, it's rather fortuitous timing because I'm in a very interesting position right now. Um, my brother... You had a dream about had... somebody? Yeah, he had a dream about having a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my brother just had his uh, first child. Um, and he's currently living in our house. Um, so he's getting ready to go on to schooling. And so in the kind of this intermediary gap, he's been staying with us because like a lease ended and then said, so right now it's very interesting because, you know, my dad has a rather similar notion um, that you have that obviously the parents responsibility, they have a role in the rearing of children. That's supposed to be an active role, not a passive role. They're supposed to be engaged. And so my dad uh, at my church that I attend has been preaching a series of um, messages on parenting. Um, 
because there are a lot of notions need I think need dissuaded about what parenting is. But it's interesting to see um, the role that he is shifting from from being just a parent to a parent and a grandparent at the same time. So I'm curious, what do you think as time goes on, the role of parents shifts or evolves? And if so, how does that happen? Yeah, I think there's certainly there's a part of parenting in the very beginning that's certainly much more active. If you believe in, for example, the, the role of deliberate practice or the 10,000 hour rule, you'd understand that at the very beginning, the objective is to, to, to coach, train, to teach the, the child how, in my, in my estimation, to be a man or a woman or a human being on their own. Um, in the case, I have a son who is probably pretty close to you all's age. He's 28. Um, but from the very beginning of his life, I never called him a boy. We always called him our man in training, and the objective was to raise a man. So now he is a man, and I don't have to raise him anymore. Anymore, I consider mm -hmm. myself merely a co-pilot on his journey. So if he has a something he wants to talk about, as an issue, then I'm just a sounding board. I'm a, I'm a pilot. I'm a co-pilot, but this is his journey now. It's not, it's not my journey and I'm not piloting him any longer. But would you distinguish that as when they're younger, is it more of your journey as well? In, in his case, at the beginning, it has to be, it has to be someone's journey because a child doesn't know where they're, where they're traveling. But mm. once you raise a child so that the child can identify where the child wants to go. It's no longer, it's no longer the parent's journey. It's the child's journey. I mean, objectively, yeah. the goal is to make sure that you raise people who understand that they have to have a journey of their own. Mm. Um, I'm mm. a big fan of the book, The Alchemist. If you've read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a character, Santiago, who, who is on a journey of his own, and he has a legend. There's a place he's trying to arrive to. It's the pyramid. And that's the way I approach being my son's father. Mm -hmm. um, he picks where he wants to go. And my objective is to help him to get to those destinations. So this is a very interesting scenario because inherently, I think, I mean, for the most part, I do think we all agree that we should be propelling our kids or potential kids into um, being the truest versions of themselves. But in terms of current society, the the argument that the discourse the controversy that's going on right now is how you do that there's people here that believe that you have a strict principle that that you should follow and follow that strict principle whether that's religion or some other ideology and there's others that think that the entire time that they're living they are free to do whatever they want and to an extent um I'm more of a friend than a parent. There's some people who think that way. And I'm going to have to bring it up because we're talking about parents. The, they even, some parents go out there and say that my kids should be allowed to identify however they want. So there's, there's a, sp a spectrum, it seems, where there's parents who want to be very strict. And then there's parents who want to be basically a friend to their kid the moment that they can speak two words. So at this point, how what is the the proper scale like uh, how will we if parents are so confused about which side to pick which side should we be telling them or how should we be telling them to navigate basically 
Well, I can't speak to what every parent should do. I can simply tell you what my philosophy is and philosophy has been about, about being a parent. My understanding for me was that the only thing that I was likely to have a legacy, the only way people might remember me would be would remember me by the child that I produced. Um, Jonathan mentioned something about his church. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, using the, the Bible or some scripture or anything as an example, because you could pick any, any number of the sacred texts to find this. There's always stories about somebody who begot somebody. And that the only way that someone is remembered is because of the people they produce and how well those people live. Now, some people are remembered because they produce some people who did some awful things. But the majority of people are remembered by the people they produce who do good things. So my objective as a parent was to produce someone who would do great things. And we use three fundamental things in that child's life that those things still are part of his life today. We wanted to raise someone who was intellectually ambitious. In other words, someone who could do well academically in school and make good grades and do well on test scores, but more importantly, could, could critically think. So the way he was raised was raised using the Socratic method. Secondly, we wanted to raise someone who was globally and culturally competent. Too many of us spend our time knowing about whatever side we pick or choose. We understand the country we live in, but we have no understanding of any other people, or the texture of anyone else's life. We wanted to make sure that he could do that. So very early on, we wanted to make sure he could speak a number of languages. He spoke four fluently to others conversationally. Wow. Thirdly, we wanted to raise someone who was a humanitarian, who understood that he was not the most important person on the planet, that his objective in life was to raise the level of society, to be a good steward for the planet. Today, that child is a, a computer, I'm sorry, a PhD in electrical and computer engineering and an MBA student, first year student at NYU with an objective of establishing his own energy company to make sure that energy is dispersed to people fairly and equally across the globe and done so with little or no cost. So I don't know what other parents were trying to do. And I don't like, but if I was to prescribe to someone what to do, I would say raising a child who can think independently and critically think can do well academically a child who understands other cultures can speak other languages and a child who care for something greater than himself. I would say that's a pretty good model to use to raise a child. I, I think those are excellent principles to abide by and they very much coincide with a lot of things that we discuss here on the podcast that we preach to like people in general with the aspect of having conversations and discussions with people being willing to have those conversations being able to grow your perspective and experience to have a better overview on how the world works and being an advocate in general, making sure you're getting involved with the issues that you may be prescribed to. And these principles, even from what you said, Nate, are three of the things that very much similarly go into those things that I was just saying. And at the end of the day, like you said, the, the core behind all of this is being a critical thinker, being an independent, and kind of knowing how everything works and not kind of just being told or fed how to think. So with that said, when you when you interact with other parents, you know, you have your core philosophies and then other parents may try to um, ask you or try to tell you that they it's better for them to live a more ideological driven way 
whether it's purely from politics or purely from religion, in those situations, having them kind of live a ideology that's purely their own and nobody else's, there's a huge debate on should the parents be kind of not forcing them or indoctrinating them necessarily, but kind of teaching them. A Correct very term is training them. Training them, you could say that as well. Kind of training them, I guess you could say, in terms of thinking a very single, single, uh, singular way, and that is the best way to raise them. And you can hear it from both sides. What do you say to these parents who who want to raise their kids? This is how I want to raise my kid, and you have no right to say anything about it. Well, the truth is, I don't have any right to tell anyone else how to raise their child. I, I don't have the right to do that. I'm not paying the cost of them raising their child. I don't pay for their housing. I don't pay for the energy. I don't pay for their food. I don't pay for any of those things. What I would ask parents and what I would ask anyone is that when your time on this planet is up, how do you want to be remembered? Who do you want people to say you were when, when your time is up? Someone is going to write your eulogy. You're not. Someone is going to speak and give your eulogy. You are not. Someone is going to put those last words on your urn or your on your gravestone. You are not. And so more likely than not, that person very well could be your child. And the question is, what kind of person will you will you raise? And what will that person say, then say about who you were? And so I would start with that. I'd start with parents all the time. I would ask parents to take a deep, hard look at themselves, even before you start considering that you want to be a parent. I'm of the mindset that being a parent is the the thing people do with the greatest amount of hubris, because most people will tell you they don't have a they don't have a manual. They will tell you there's no book for parenting, and yet they still go out and create another life. So that's a lot of hubris to do that. So my beginning with begin with asking a person who exactly they are and who do they want to be when their time is up. Very powerful message, very powerful message. Before we move on to the next part of, of the conversation, uh, Jonathan, do you have any, anything you want to bring up? Um, no, I agree with some of what he says. I would push back a little bit on the fact that there is, um, there is a book that teaches us how to parent. And uh, I think we're done knows what I'll say. It's the Bible. You say it was the Bible. And, and I would say to you this, mm -hmm. Jonathan, I have a master's in history and theology, and I spent mm -hmm. a number of years in a pulpit. And I can assure you that mm -hmm. the Bible does not tell you how to raise a, it, it, it gives well, you a, it gives you a skeleton, but it does not give you, um, it does not give you the step-by-step -step directions on the things to do yeah. to raise a well, child in the 21st I wasn't, century. I wasn't quite finished what okay, I was going to say. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I, I agree, right? Because uh, my parents will testify to this. Um, I was raised very different uh, from my brother, right? Uh, my brother and me are two of the most different people you can you can possibly fathom, uh, even though we came from the same house. So obviously discipline was different um, between me and my brother. When I did something I wasn't disciplined exactly in the same way that my brother was um, because certain things work for me that don't work for him. What the Bible does do is it gives you a leaping off point and it gives you a, an image 
uh, of what a heavenly father is supposed to look like, what a perfect father does this sort of thing. And if you want to be a good example, then you will also do this sort of thing. Uh, and one of the big things that is obviously a very taboo item today is discipline. Nobody wants to discipline, but that's one of the most important things that a loving father does is he disciplines. He corrects because a father must have, I think you brought up this point in so many words, that a good father has a vision for their children. They have a vision for their lives and they have a vision for their children's lives because they know the kinds of things that their children can do. And it is a, a wicked person that would inhibit them from that. And so when, you know, an example could be, you know, I have a vision for somebody uh, or say a father has a vision for their son or a mother has a vision for their son. And uh, it is a good time of playing outside. That vision will quickly be distorted and eradicated if their child goes out to the road because then some disastrous things can happen. And so a correct way to approach that is discipline. You say, no, that's not going to be good for you to go out to the road. And because that will distort your future, it will distort the vision that you have yourself. And that's a very simplistic way, I think, of explaining it, but it's true. And it's a vision that can be applied up until they're a person in their own rights. And then, like you mentioned in the outset, when I asked you, um, obviously, the role of parents changes. But I think the the key thing in all that is that there is actually a first principles kind of guide that people can have for parenting, and it's the Bible, um, I would say. Um, and I think that obviously there's nuance there and, and different people, but it, it gives you a very good principle in how you're supposed to attack that. Okay, I'm, I, I won't... Uh... I don't want to belabor a point. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna agree to sort of disagree, but I won't. I won't belabor the point. Fair enough. One thing I will say in, in reference to um to that, uh, Jonathan, is that I think it definitely depends if their interpretation is as cor correct as yours own, right? Because at the end of the day, people can interpret things differently. When it when it comes down to um, a situation, um, I do think you gain a lot of value from the Bible. I've said this numerous times. There's a lot of things that you can gain a lot of value based off how the how the the moral structure or the principle structure is set out for the person to follow. And we gotta hope that people will be able to follow it in a justified manner at the end of the day, which is the goal, of course. But in those situations when they don't, we also have to make sure that they're understanding other ways to potentially parent forward. So it definitely could be a combination of a lot of things, I will say. And I think the Bible can be a very good outline, but for those people who won't believe or don't believe for whatever reason that they don't believe, I would say Nate's kind of three-pronged principle, which very much aligned to a lot of things that we talked about and kind of mediating the, the political toxicity that is going on in current society can be very helpful for those as well. But there, there's a, something that you brought up that is uh, important to discuss, and that is discipline. And the reason why I'm gonna bring this up is because as of right now in American society, one thing we do know is that the family and, and relationships have been changing. And the potential problem that we have been seeing is that there's no kind of principle, so to speak, for some of these individuals 
to kind of tell them, hey, man, you, you want to be in a structured family where there's equal amount of, let's say, discipline, i.e. a father, and care and tenderness, i.e. a mother. So, uh, Nate, what do you think about this current, uh, the current society in terms of all the single parents and how that's affecting a lot of the children nowadays? I think the, the easy thing to do is to take a look at a, at a singular issue and make it a singular issue. The, the more useful thing to me seems to be to ask oneself, how do you become a single parent? Not, not the question of what do I think about single parenting? I'd ask the question, how does a nation produce so many single parents? How does a nation that, that defines itself as a Christian nation produce so many single parents? How does a nation that defines itself as a Christian nation produce so many people who are unhoused or un yeah, that's the term that's used unhoused. How does a nation that considers itself a Christian nation have people who don't earn a living wage? These are questions that are all tied up to the question you just asked, but the question you ask is the outcome. It is not the process that got us there. I'm more interested in the root causes than I am about pointing fingers at people because they live a certain way that many times they had nothing to do with their conditions. Okay. So there is definitely a lot of elements that you brought up and we've talked about it before in reference to, for example, welfare or, or for example, the education system. Um, but do you not think that there is a certain also element, another potential prong to the equation in terms of the the loss of family, the loss of the nuclear family, the not want of, you know, staying as a parent, the not want of, you know, staying with your child. Do you think we have, in terms of culture, this is more of a culture thing, not a policy thing. Do you think our culture has changed for us not wanting uh, nuclear families as much as we did back in the day? So I guess implicit in your question is the belief that people don't want to be responsible for their children. And I don't, I disagree with that. I think we live, we, we have a society that understands. So let me, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, are, are either of you all parents? No. Okay. So there's this thing that happens when, when people are pregnant and a woman is pregnant. And now we say, when we say we, uh, but in the final trimester, there's this thing called Lamas. And most people who who have uh, dissociative government well-being, they take a Lamas course. And the Lamas course, if you're familiar with it, I think it's about four to six weeks you go and you learn how to deliver a child. There's, it's a child delivery course. How to eat ice chips, how to rub the belly, with a rub on the back, et cetera. Now, but you know what this nation does not do? This nation has no child rearing. Of course, none, none. You live in a nation where people, people have to, two people have to work in order to raise a child. That was not always the case. So when you talk about a time when there were the, the nuclear family, you're also probably talking about a time where one income was sufficient enough to take care of family. And one person, primarily at the time there was a woman, would stay at home and raise a child. You don't live in a nation like that anymore. 
you live in something very different. You're also talking about a time when men were able to work in places like factories. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, where there was steel mill. A lot of men worked in the steel mill. They didn't go to school. They didn't need an education. They could get out of high school. They could take care of family. That doesn't exist today. So to ignore those pieces to, the, to this puzzle seems to do people an, uh, a disservice by having the conversation about what people are or are not doing with their children. The world is very different. Not just parenting. The world is different. Yeah, I definitely agree the world is different. And I would always adhere to better education for trying to understand the, the scopes of life. Because that, I do think there's a certain loss of that because people are not getting enough experience in terms of the real world. And you can attribute that to a lot of factors. Obviously, getting fed information constantly from a technology could be one of them. But that's not it's one of many, of course. But my, my thing regarding it is that in the situation where we know that one income, one income is not enough for a family, it, it would probably should incentivize people to stay with their families more to make sure that there's that two income. Because as of right now, the big problem with uh, a lot of individuals, especially when it comes to mental illness, for example, is a lot of them are in these kind of broken homes. And my thing when it comes down to is there's a certain level of individualistic responsibility that certain people have to take when they kind of put themselves in this situation. Because when it comes to sex, for example, and obviously I'm one who indulges in such activities, I know, crazy. I, I kind of realized that, hey, man, I don't want to get my girl pregnant. And the, and the, when I realized that, one thing that I always make sure I'm doing is I'm always making sure I'm wearing a condom. I don't risk it and go condomless and think that, oh, YOLO, if, if, if it doesn't happen, she could just get an abortion or if she could just take birth control and, you know, it'll be okay, right? So there's a certain lo level that I do think you can attribute. All other factors need to be addressed, I agree. But I do think there's a certain level that can also be addressed as well in terms of personal responsibility that I don't think is necessarily enforced. And I do think one thing that you could that could add upon kind of the conversation that we're talking about, and I'm not blaming parents, but I'm saying one part one part of it is making sure that you have a a parental structure. Not obviously the kids can't make sure of this, but when you're like a parent and you're thinking about, I'm about to raise my kid, I want to make sure they understand this level of responsibility. I want to make sure they understand that this is not something that you want for your potential kids. Because I personally don't want to ever get divorced, and I don't want to be a, a like deadbeat father. That is something I never want for my eventual kids, because I know how terrible it can be from experience, is all I'll say. So... I do think there there's something that could help with that. And one thing that could help is making sure that at the very least, when we're teaching the next generation, that there's a certain level of responsibility you will have. And there's certain things that you don't want to do. And it goes hand in hand with what you said, Nate. When you look in the mirror and when you think about your life, it's like, is this what I did? Is this my life? Is this how I'm going to do this? This is what all I did throughout my life is teach not teach my kid proper responsibility or not be there for their for them of course so i think it all goes hand in hand personally do you, you want me to say something additional uh to that yeah, i i um, just, i always again, do I, 
I always I don't, don't, just in case you want to respond. You know, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a little like Jonathan's comment earlier. Um, I got I don't want to spend time on your show belaboring the same point over and over. I I don't I hear what you said. You said you wear a condom. I got that. Um, a condom is not a hundred percent a guarantee. It's not a hundred percent guarantee. If you wanted to hundred percent guarantee, my guess is Jonathan would tell you to abstain, and that's the way you you have a hundred percent guarantee. Correct. So on the one hand, it's a little bit of double talk because you're having your cake and you believe you're eating it too because your condom holds up, but you're not married. Uh, and again, based upon what I believe will be Jonathan's uh, perspective, she should be your wife before you're having sex with her in the first place. And so uh, there's a little double talk in terms of one's ability to live to a certain standard. You want other people to live to a standard that you find befitting, and yet you get to skirt the rules as you see fit. And all I'm saying to you is, like, you should, we should be careful. People live in glass houses should be careful about throwing stones. And when you start saying that people don't want or don't honor the responsibility of taking care of their children, et cetera, I'm saying there's much more to it than the simplicity of the conversation that you're currently having. And it is unfair to have a, uh, a very complex conversation and then try to limit it to simplistic issues. Okay. So if you, want to have a, if you want to talk about the conversation and be honest about it, then you have to start at the origin and look at all of the aspects, not just the parts of it that you don't particularly like. So okay. Nick, I would ask you. Well, yeah, well, let, me, um, let me say one thing and then I'll let you say that is I do understand what you're saying. Um, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of things you're saying, um, but like you said, we don't have to belabor the point for now. Uh, but I do think you can address certain points piece by piece, depending on the conversation. And so, uh, Mr. Mr. Lewis, let me give you an example of what I'm saying, so that so that that I give you complete texture to it. All right. The families that you're talking about, the society that you were talking about, where people were responsible are also communities at the time when people raised children as a part of a village. I grew up in, I was born in 1965 in Gary, Indiana. I had come from the kinds of households that you're describing as people who may not been as responsible. In 1965, when I was born in Gary, at the time considered, well, in their, in their late 70s and 80s, considered the murder capital of the world, considered the crime capital of, of the world. Um, many of the people that you're describing today are the kinds of people who lived in Gary, Indiana. So I'm telling you from firsthand experience how people become the things that you're describing that they, that they are. Most, most, of, most of what happens to communities like that is that they no longer see people who are two-parent families. They no longer have people that are part of their village to help them to raise their children. Nobody raises a child by themselves. They raise child and children in conjunction with supportive people. But if you live in an environment where there are no supportive people, if you live in an environment where people are all having children and nobody's being responsible, that becomes the norm. So you're asking people to do something that they never see. Well, good luck with that. That is a rarity. Stop right there. Yes, this is a little mini ad. Don't skip. Don't skip. 
All I want to tell you right now is that at the end of the day, when it comes down to all the discussions I want to have, I want to be able to communicate with you, the audience. I want to be able to relay a message and receive a message from everyone and try to come up with these great solutions that I keep on talking about. So if you want to be part of the community, make sure you go to the website and sign up for not only the email list so you can get weekly emails from me for the podcast episode, informational sessions, all that great stuff, but also sign up to go on my Discord so you can be part of the discussions, debates on my live streams. So be sure to go to the website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com and go to the email list, sign up and go to the Discord and join the server. Now back to the episode when it happens. So I'm not willing to hold people in judgment because they never see something. More often than not, the people who talk about those communities don't live in those communities. They don't put their money in those communities. They don't support the school systems. They don't understand how school systems work. They don't understand why kids are on free and reduced lunches. So there's, a again, there's a lot to it and a lot more than simply saying that people should do better. Yes, objectively, we would all like people to do better. But I'll add this other additional point. I listened to your part of your conversation last week as you all talked about the about the UPS drivers. And I thought it was an interesting conversation because nowhere in that conversation did you insert your responsibility to the union. And that's what happens so often. We're always talking about what other people should or should do differently without understanding our responsibility or the role that we play in the conditions that people are actually in. Right. So I definitely understand what you're saying, of course. And it's a big conversation, which I also don't dismiss. But at the end of the day, I can't necessarily agree with the point that we can't speak on certain certain elements of the topic. I do think we can speak on certain elements of the topic. I do think that the bigger conversation is a conglomerate, and which is why there's so many episodes a part of the discussion, of course. But I do think that sometimes people need to be reminded about personal responsibility. I personally do think there's a lot of elements to what you say that you should know about and you should be a part of. But like you said, it's very nuanced because the people who don't know anything probably are also people that need to be told something at the same time. And in general, when it comes to like conversation regarding the UPS, I definitely agree. But we were kind of just talking about the current topic. But when you want to truly get deep in the conversation, which is what these main topics are about, which is why we can go back and forth. When you truly want to get into that, I do think that's going to take some time to kind of diving into the nitty gritty. And those in-depth topics, those are something that needs to come naturally. Those are something that needs to be frequent and consistent and constant. And I don't preach something on the podcast. What I don't preach is just saying things and not doing anything. We, I definitely want to make sure that people are being advocates, which was we consistently preach. But overall, like you said, we're gonna, we can agree to disagree for now. But I do think there's a deeper conversation here that I'm willing to engage in for the future. But overall, the, the, the main point of the topic that we're discussing is the role of parents. And in the circumstance that we're just referring to, it's a very, very tough situation to be in, of course. And then we talked about the, the some responsibilities or some principles you can lead by to leading the future generation. 
the another aspect of parenting when you're when you're going forward is the involvement of said parent to the kid's life when let's say for example education is involved when social media is involved as we see now in these conversations social media to a lot of people are feeding them a lot of information whether it's ideologically driven or just just plain just comedy or cartoons or whatever it is and then education there's a lot of political discourse or debate on hey i don't want my kids learning this i don't want my kids learning that so in this conversation what is the role what is the parent's role in terms of the information they're consuming in both technology social media and the education system I mean, if the world were perfect, as I, as I described earlier, like I don't use the word education. I use the word intellectual ambition, and I use the word critical thinking. I think to use the word uh, education is a little bit of a misnomer. I'm more interested about enlightenment than I am about education. Oh, I'm just talking people, about the uh, public education system, like the schooling system, what they teach the kids. Sure. And again, my point is that I'm not interested in, in the education as you typically um, digest education. I'm not interested in that. I listen from the beginning when my when when my son was born, actually before he was born, I wrote Harvard for an application. My objective was is, is was was to make sure that whatever we had, boy or girl, male or female, that that child was able to meet the academic qualifications of Harvard at 14. That was my objective. I didn't care about what the school system was doing. I didn't care about what the superintendent had in mind. I knew what I wanted for my own child. And so the responsibility was mine. And and that's what I think that that is, a, again, something that parents don't understand is that too often what this nation asks of us is to outsource our responsibilities to other people. For me, the school system should be a partner with me. The school system is not the di- director. I'm the director. And so... It is my responsibility to get my child to where I need them to go. I would ask you all both this because you all were in school more recently than I was in school. When you were in school, what college did your school's curriculum prepare you for? Uh, Jonathan, you want to go first? Um, so, te- I mean, we could talk technically theoretically. Uh, it was Bowling Green because I, I want was, you to I, I was, excuse me. I, I don't want you. I don't want you to talk to me theoretically. I want you to tell no, me what college well, I, you I'll, ex- I'll explain why it was Bowling Green because I was homeschooled, and okay. my dad was a professor, and so we okay. would do a lot of Bowling Green's curricula, and we would okay. do a lot of their application and qualifications. So you were being prepared to attend Bowling Green. Yeah, and that's where I okay. attend. Interesting. Enough. Okay. How yes. about you, Mr. Lewis? Yeah, so as for me, uh, the education, my public education did not do a good job in setting me up for college. I would actually have to go out of my way to learn a different program that potentially helped for me. Uh, there's a lady who t- also went out of her way to create a program called Made for More to help you know, uh, you know, minority people like me to make sure that they're getting into education. So I had to do something else that's not even related to the curriculum. So I would say in general, not really anything, to be honest. Uh, so I don't think my public education system did any anything good for it. So, so did your parents fail you? Did my parents? Uh, they weren't really involved in my me going to college. So that's a, that would be a yes or a no? 
I'm just trying to make sure I tie it into well, the conversation you had earlier about what's the role of parents and right when yeah, we yeah, look yeah. at other people. No, no, I understand. I, I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be difficult. Um, but in terms of to relate it to make sure they connect, uh, if the goal is to make sure your kid goes to college and makes everything that they can make out of themselves in a public education institution, if that's the goal for a parent to lead them that way, then yeah, my parents would have failed because I did everything myself. So I can't say they succeeded in that just because I succeeded. We do two different things. So the so the school's objective, most schools today say that they are preparing students to be college and career ready. And so what I right. just heard you say that that didn't happen for you. And Jonathan was fortunate enough to have a father who's a college professor, correct? Who yes, made sure that Jonathan was on track to attend an institution equal to Bowling Green University. Right. So when you ask me what's the role of a parent, I would tell you that the role of a parent is more like what Jonathan described as it relates to education than it is to the way you describe your upbringing. But I would further say that the role of a parent is to, I'd like to see parents think about what is the highest possible educational institution your child could attend and then work backwards from that. And the reason that I would start at those places is because today we live in a society that's predicated off elite institutions. And and we, you all are also talking about the situation with Harvard and affirmative action, UNC with affirmative action. It's a reason why those people are, are trying so desperately to get into those institutions. They have the largest endowments. Students can go to school and not be in debt. So you can go to school and not be in debt and wind up one day raising children be, and who have, have a whole lot of money to pay to student loans and can't make ends meet and not be a great parent because you're working two or three jobs because you're trying to pay off some debt because you picked a major and you didn't understand how to choose a major and so on and so forth. Yep. Like we're going and on, you understand the rabbit hole. That's one of the yep. biggest things that I would say my dad helped with was, you know, there were certain majors that I was certainly not allowed to pick. Um, I wasn't, he said, yeah, you can't, get any and he also you know because he was inside the institution he really helped me with the application and the enrollment and the class scheduling because it can be confusing a lot of times if you have no experience and so i give great kudos to any parents that can help with that process and that's what we, and that's what we've been doing here uh, for the last you know seven or eight years showing parents how to backward design their own children's life with the objective, if a parent is interested in sending their child to college, to get them to think primarily about what it is they want their children to do and be, and then making sure they understand the cost of of attending school. And I'm sorry, how to mitigate that. So I have a question for you, Mr. Turner. What do you do? No, I'm just Nate, just Nate, just Nate. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) No worries. Um, Um, what do you do with parents that don't want their kids to go to college? How do you, do you have anything to help or do you have any like personal recommendations for how do you navigate that? Sure. So again, the the question is not so much about, do you want your child to go to college? The question is, what are your hopes and dreams for your child? So that's where I'm always going to start. And if a, if a parent doesn't have any hopes and dreams for their children, then, then this, 
the conversation is going to be very short because there's because everything for me starts with your hopes and your dreams. And then I'm going to ask you to dream audaciously. Like, I don't want just, well, one day I dream of, I don't know, owning a car. One day I dream my child going to college. No, I want to know what college you want your child to go to. If the world were perfect and you could have anything you wanted, what does that look like? That's where I want to start. And if a parent says, I'm not interested in having my child go to college, I want my child to have a great job and my, I want my child to be a plumber or electrician or any, like anything, I'd say, that's great. But here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to say, you're fine. Your child can be a plumber or an electrician. That's what you want them to do. But I'm going to say, is it possible for us to prepare what I call the buffet table? Let's make sure that your child can be a plumber or electrician. But let's also make sure your child can do math and science well enough that if they choose one day to be a doctor or a lawyer, they can do that too. Because we can't go back and undo what we should have done to begin with. So let's give them the full buffet table as opposed to only giving them one portion of the table. I grew up in Gary, as I mentioned. Um, I was prepared to eat from the end of the buffet table where they serve bologna sandwiches and, and peanut butter and jelly. On the other end of the table was filet mignon and Don Perignon. I was not prepared for that. What I ask parents today to do is prepare your children to have access to the whole table and then let them choose for themselves what they wanted to do. But let's not pigeonhole them and only leave them with a small number of options. Let's give them, make all the options available to them. So these are the great points. And I, I overall, it just really tells you that the parent at the end of the day should be very much involved and definitely care about what the, what the child is doing. And everything you said is very much an adherence to that, which is why I'm so curious to kind of reinforce uh, something I said earlier in terms of social media, because there's a lot of touchiness when it comes to social media and technology. Because I, I saw this one clip where this lady said all she did was give her kid a tablet and just kind of let her let the kid look at whatever they want. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on social media and technology. And do you think they can be harmful in terms of the growth of a child? I think social media is a tool. And we're right now, you, um, Jonathan, and I are part of social media. True. And do I think you... Jonathan and I are doing going to do something harmful to anyone? The answer is no. I think social, social media is about intentionality. So yes, there are people and there are things that are intentionally bad, and then there are people and there are things that are not intentionally bad. So I don't, I think um, social media is a tool. I'm more interested in the people and how we administer it to. So yes, if a parent decides that they're going to outsource parenting to a tool, then they're probably going to have a problem. But if a parent decides that they're going to use the tool on occasion to help their child, then it's pretty good. I grew up with calculators. If my parents gave me a calculator with no instruction on how to use the calculator, it'd be a waste of time. But if someone gives me a calculator and spend time with me and tell me how to use the calculator, then you know what I become? I become an accountant. And one day I become a lawyer. So, um, yeah, this, I think just the tool and how, and how those who give the tool give the instruction for how to use the tool. All right. Uh, I, th I also agree to that as well. Uh, when it comes down to it, you got to really make sure they understand what they're about to get into and what they're about to use. I do that, think that's a powerful thing to say, of course. So um, I guess the, the next thing about when it comes down to, to this conversation is 
when it comes to the the role of parents and then the government there's an interesting conversation <laughs> there's an interesting conversation here where people are saying that the government should have absolutely no impact in terms of uh the parent's role in raising their kids and others may argue that hey man sometimes you may need to get involved for x y and z i mean the uh child services are a perfect example so um how, how do you perceive the government's role when it comes to parenting i think that's an interesting question um Here's here's a fact. I want to start with this. Here's a fact that those who say that they are poor having the government involved in parenting. Most school systems throughout the country, if you pull up a school systems charter, you will find that almost universally from the age of six to 16, the only institution that bears a legal responsibility for a child is a school system. A governmental entity bears the burden of of taking care of a child. They're responsible for educating that child. They're also responsible for a child um, cannot, if a child is is poor, they're responsible for feeding that child twice a day. So to say that we don't think government should have any any, uh, responsibility in raising a child is, is incorrect because we allow it all the time. It happens all the time. If you send your child to a public school, you're sending your child to a school that has in its in its charter, in its state, a guidance that the school will have will bear responsibility for your child in ways that parents don't have to. Parents can turn their children over to foster care. Churches and other religious institutions don't have to open their doors to them. Community service organizations don't have to care for them. Businesses don't have to care for them. The only institution that has a legal obligation to children are schools. So my my answer to your question is I, I I don't feel like it's a bad thing if if a government agency in some respect takes care of a child because I don't know how the children who live on free and reduced lunch eat if they're waiting on the rest of us to take care of them. Man, those things come in clutch. I'm gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. Those things come in clutch. Uh, Jonathan, you have anything to add? Um. I guess I would agree. I think that's a very good because it, it's hard with these sort of things to deal in black and white and say like because there's a lot of people that say um, the government shouldn't have a role. Um, and then when they say that, if they really hold true to their convictions, then they would do something like what my parents did in homeschool me. And um, and I think that's a great solution. It's one that some people um, such as as Paul would disagree with that and said that it is not okay to homeschool your children um, because for XYZ reasons uh, that I'm not going to speak for Paul. Um, but I think it, it's foolishness if you say the government should have no role in raising your children and then you put them into the public school system um, without any, any guiders. What I'd be curious for your thoughts, Nate, is um, – some people simply don't have the means to homeschool their children, um, though they would want to. How much input would you say uh, do you think that parents should have in what is taught in schools? That's a good question. What, how much 
input should parents have? Um, so I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to presuppose what you're getting around to. And maybe about today, we live in a place where, where we're talking about things like critical race theory and, and, and gender and so forth. I think I would like to see schools that could make sure children first and foremost could master reading, writing, math, and science. And right now we're, we're failing at that miserably. So mm -hmm. it feels mm -hmm. to me often that we're talking about um, a lot of um, exterior issues without getting to the more uh, internal issues that, that govern how well we, we, we produce in terms of a larger society. And the overwhelming numbers of, of American children cannot read, write, do math and science at a, at a proficient level. And certainly, yeah. as I know it very much in terms of the African-American community, only about 5 or 6% of African-American children can meet those standards and do so exceeding proficiency. So I think we get caught up a lot with smokescreen issues. Sure, we can talk about gender. We can talk about uh, the history of African-American people. We can talk about a lot of that. But I'm, I'm more interested in can you actually read the textbook because if you can read the textbook, you can tell for yourself that this textbook is not something that's true. Well, maybe not something that's true, but you can read enough things. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in reading, writing, math, and science as opposed to some of the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the those social issues. I think that you could actually get those things at home. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to set you up for any kind of question like that. I am a huge advocate for, for literacy. Um, I know because I worked with a, a PhD student uh, who admitted that she probably had a, a fourth grade reading level on a good day. Um, and, and, and that's tragic. Unfortunately, her degree was in math. So, um, but I think, I think it's, it's interesting. There's lots of studies that have shown the importance of literacy and as literacy rates increase, recidivism rates decrease. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, I, I think I'm curious to see uh, just to gauge your personal perspective on this. Um, but I am a greater advocate of literacy, even above like math skills, um, because if you can't read and you can't write, I don't think you can think very well either, because uh, if you can't put your own thoughts onto paper effectively, how are you going to speak those thoughts effectively? Um, and I think reading and thinking obviously are very important uh, elements of the Socratic method, which you obviously uh, exonerate and, and I do as well. Um, so I'm curious what you think about that. Sure. So I think that there is obviously there's, there's lots of learning styles. So I, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that if I can read um, it trumps being able to do math because here's what I know. Most of what we do today is based on ones and zeros. Now I That's can't true. program anything, and we're we're all right now having a conversation because somebody else could do math extremely well. We're not having a conversation because somebody could read or write. Mm. We're having a conversation because some programmer could program something so that we could do software that allows us to have conversations with each other in different parts of the of, of parts of the uh, of the country. There are say parts of the planet. So I'm not. So I'm not. I'm not willing to suggest that there's one form of um, one style that preempts the other. I would like, again, for us to have the buffet table and be able to do 
multiple things and not just have to pick or choose which one is better than the other. Fair point. You're wrong about math, Jonathan. You're wrong. Um, No, I love math. I'm just saying I think in our culture by and large, uh, well, I should say where I – no, I will say in our culture by and large, we exonerate STEM a lot. And STEM's important, but I think a lot of times it suffers. Um, I have a friend, and we have an, an endless debate. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that most people would probably side with my friend, even though he is wrong and I am right, um, <laughs> about that Shakespeare is horrible and trash. And nobody should have to read Shakespeare because Shakespeare uh, is a little bit light in the loafers. And I disagree. I say Shakespeare is infinitely important, and everybody should have to read Shakespeare. Uh, and he disagrees. And I think it is a, a failure uh, uh, on many sides. that His parents should have taught him that Shakespeare is important. But, um, but I think the point, the point that I'm trying to make is that we don't teach why reading is important. We just say you should read, but we do say math is important for the reasons you just pointed out. Because everything is now zeros and ones, everything is math. But if we want the buffet table, then we also have to be told why reading is important and why writing is important as well. Because there's also sure. people that can read very well but not write very well. And there, those are two things that are supposed to be in tandem. And that's all that yeah. I was trying to say. I, obviously, math is very important. I'm sitting in a house that exists only because of math. Um, mm-hmm. But reading, I think, is is – I would say – it's on an equal plane because it, it speaks to a different part of the soul. I would say math speaks to the analytical, but writing speaks to the creative. And once again, if you want a buffet, you need to be both analytical and creative. Um, and so that would be, that would yeah. be my position. No argument for me. My dad told me years ago was, a, I don't know, probably was 10. Um, that if you could read, you could do anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and you know, I would say I would totally agree with that. And you, you mentioned The Alchemist, and uh, admittedly, I have not read it yet, but it, I can see it on my shelf right there. Paulo Coelho wrote it uh, and many mm-hmm. other good books. Um, it, it's certainly on my list to get there. But one of the things I think that reading can allow us to do is is have greater vision about things because we can read and we can – I think I don't like the man very much, uh, but he did make a good point. I believe it was George R. R. Martin that said, you know, somebody who never reads has lived one life. Somebody who has read has lived a thousand lives. And there's a lot of science that shows the advantages of reading in, in the in the aspects of empathy and critical thinking and all of these other very important characteristics um, that you don't get if you don't read. Sure. Very so, true. That, well, I think, what are we now? We're like four or five things in a row we agree on. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Very true, very true. So I do want to dive into your three prongs a little bit more, and I want to start off with, like, critical thinking. Because, um, okay. I mean, we all agree critical thinking is very important, especially when teaching the kids. I would go as far to, like, I've said it numerous times that critical thinking should be taught in public schools and it should be a definite focus to make them think about, you know, things a little bit more in-depthly. And I guess the, 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 the question here is, is how exactly do you teach a kid critical thinking? Jonathan wants to say something. 
I think he, he's. I think he's gonna oh, get a book. He, Anytime he, he leaves, he's, he gets a book. He's gonna get a book. So, so should I wait till he comes back? <laughs> no, you could go and he's listening. He got his earphones on. Um, my father taught me how to think critically using the Socratic method. At the time, I did not know that that's what he was doing, but when I got to law school, I realized that's exactly what he had done. And so, for me, that's the best way. To, treat, to teach critical thinking, which is Socratic method, which is mostly asking questions and allowing the person to answer and find the answers themselves. So, but effective. But let's see what you got, true. Jonathan. Let's see what you got. Um, so, what are the best ways that you can uh, teach critical thinking is to use critical thinking cards. <laughs> it's, it's, I try actually I actually reached out to these people to see if I could get a sponsorship, but it was a, like a joke gift that my dad got me for Christmas one year, but they're actually awesome. It's a list of all the logical fallacies and all the like the solutions to them and and critical thinking like fundaments. And it's funny because it's got Plato, Socrates and Aristotle and all the cards and they're actually very interesting and they have ways to do them. But I think the main point I want to do that, not just make a dumb joke, but one of the ways that we can teach critical thinking is to teach uh, what the logical fallacies that so many people suffer from are. And when you can do that, you can identify people's arguments and the way that they think. And you can, it's not to point out the errors in somebody else's thinking, but to uh, gird yourself from those same errors. When you highlight and identify and define what thinking should look like, how it should look, and uh, how certainly to not do it. And these highlight all those. So I just thought that was funny. But amazing cars. About to say something. You thought he was going to get a book. No, no. I, I thought he I, was going to get I, a book. I, I, I got some cars usually I do get a book. <laughs> usually no. I, I, have, I have no disagreement. I believe Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Not worth living. And so I think the more the more important thing to do is to examine oneself and that for me is more what critical thinking is about if, mm -hmm. if there's an issue I'm, I'm also looking at the issue from not so much as how do i judge or measure someone else but perhaps more about about me yep i agree i, I agree too and i guess the the, the follow-up here is the amount of asking questions, the amount of really thinking things through, the value of it is so important and so powerful. And even having, you know, being able to respond and going back and forth can be uh, powerful as well. I, I guess for a parent who's like listening or thinking about, okay, uh, let me challenge my kid's mind, help them evolve their thinking. I guess the question for them would be, okay, what if they ask something that not necessarily I don't know the answer to, but that it's so controversial that I don't know how to answer it, I think is the better question here. And there's plenty of examples that in terms of politics, for example, you could think of where it's like, there's such a complicated, I don't even know how to even start with the, with the answer or start with the, the dialogue here. What would you say to these parents? How would they go about this? If they don't, if the parent themselves doesn't, doesn't have an answer to a question, then they don't even know it, how to answer the question. Like if someone asked yeah. them, um, you know, uh, do what do you think about abortion, for example? And they are they don't have a clear stance. They don't know how to answer it. They have no idea how to engage in a conversation. I think you 
you ask you answer honestly and you say just what you just said. I don't have an answer for that question. However, I'm I'd be happy if you want to for us to look for an answer together. Mm. Like I don't have an answer. But let's figure what we but to get collectively, let's let's figure it out. Let's find out what our position is on that. Let's look at the pros and cons, the good and the bad. Let's look at it together. And I'm not going to ever tell you what you have to think, but collectively, maybe we'll come to an answer and we'll both understand something. I think this ties in splendidly to a point that I was making earlier and I, and one that Nate has highlighted a couple times. And I, I kind of made a, a very offhand remark that I didn't get to elaborate on, but it, it is the difference between, I think, training and indoctrinating. When you train somebody, you teach them a system with which they can use in every area of their lives. When it comes to what you just brought up, training them would be, let us go figure it out together. Let's let's examine all the evidence. Let's look at the things. And when you train somebody to do something, you can apply it to different points. Someone who's indoctrinating, they just give the party line. They just tell the party line and they say, this is what we think about this. And that teaches them nothing. It doesn't give them a system with which they can apply and use. And that's what I have like an issue with my own political party that says, oh, we also indoctrinate kids. We just indoctrinate kids into the correct way of thinking. It's like, no, indoctrination does nothing good. It does nothing good whatsoever. Uh, training them does. And obviously training them to use the Socratic method is going to get them on my side anyways. But <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, let me say this. I, I apologize if for cutting you off earlier so you weren't able to make your point. And no, so no, Riddell cut me off. It's okay. No, oh, okay. Uh, I do that. It's yeah. always Riddell's fault. <laughs> so, but, but I appreciate the clarification. And, and um, I would say this, that the reason why I've attempted to, your word is to train my son is because mm -hmm. I realize that tomorrow for me is not promised. And if, and if today is my very last day on the planet, the thing that I'm responsible for is to make sure he's as prepared as he possibly could be. And you can't prepare someone if you're not showing people how to fish on their own. And all you're ever doing is bringing them fish to eat. So I mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that he could, take care of himself and part of that is the his ability to think about things critically with with or without my presence absolutely excellent so an another problem that you uh mentioned was in re reference to um more specifically you brought up learning a lot of different languages and the idea of like being able to engage with different cultures being able to have these conversations we've said something similar in terms of just gaining more first uh perspective and experience on how the world works basically not be ignorant about how the world works uh now in this situation i, I would ask in the parents uh situation i guess what is the best way they should go about trying to get get this kid to learn about these different things learn about these different languages gain the perspective especially if they're one Fortunately for me, like my dad was in the Navy. I'm also like very mixed. So I've met a lot of different people. So I never had that issue. But there's people in small towns that obviously they never leave like Ohio, for example, and they just never leave. And they, just, <laughs> they don't get a lot of uh, experience or perspective, potentially, potentially. Uh, so I, I in wonder those who he's talking about. 
Nah, Jonathan has a lot of. He's been to more countries than I have, so he, he got it. He got it. I was very. I've been very blessed to live in Africa, to travel to Australia, be new. I've I've gone to. I've now been to more countries than I have fingers. So. Amen. Okay. Cool. So he got cool. a good a good taste of it. So how would you tell these parents to go about this to uh, get their kid to grow in terms of their experience? Well, if if parents live in a small town, that's tough. I mean, so asking people to leave their small town if they don't have the means and wherewithal to do that, that's tough. But I would say when parents live in a place, I live just outside of Indianapolis. And I share with families all the time that one of our biggest challenges is that in the case that Jonathan just described, we as a nation love to tell people that we had a foreign exchange experience. I went to Paris. I went to England. I went to South Africa. I went to Brazil. But then I'd say, have you been across the street? So I'd say, how do you do it? If you can't leave the country, you do something I call a domestic exchange. You decide to spend your money and your time in places with people who don't look like you. You decide to get your hair cut if you're white at the black barbershop. You decide if you're black to, instead of worshiping at the Baptist church, to go to the mosque or to the synagogue. I'm saying you exchange your time and your energy with other people and in other places. And you do things that are not the things that you normally do. You do, you do some different things the very way you would do if you left the country. You don't go to, to Italy to do what you do in America. Maybe, but that's a wasted trip. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Very true. And uh, the last problem that you mentioned uh, was the involving, being involved, being a humanitarian, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. These are also very important. I guess the the point here for a parent would be like, how do I teach my kid to care? Right, this is the like, the big important thing. How do I teach them to care about the world, care about advocating, care about people in general? And I think this is also very important, especially how divided we are. Teaching people to care about people is a very, you know, potentially a very tough thing to do for certain parents. So, how would they go about that? So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna. Um... I'm going to use, not use, I'm going to borrow from Jonathan's uh, philosophy because I believe in it. I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm, I'm patronizing you. I believe that, the, that as, as the text says, you, that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we could throw everything else away. We could throw all the 66 books away, and we still fail those two things. So you're asking me, how does a parent do something? The first and foremost thing the parents got to understand is they understand what love actually is. And most of us have no clue what that means. And if you love something that's bigger and greater than you, and then you love your neighbor, you don't have to worry about whether or not your children will become humanitarians. They're going to see, that's all they're ever going to see. They're going to see people who who love. They're going to see people who pour into other people's lives. But if you never do that, if you don't understand what love means, if you understand that love is a reciprocal thing without without the right to hold someone in terms of obligation, then you're never going to have humanitarians. 
being a representative of love that's a that's such a good message it's such a good idea because not gonna lie you know that no matter how much smart i think i am that that part is where i struggle being a representative of love is very tough to do yeah be love instead of waiting and waiting for someone to love you be love be love in everything that you do personify love in everything that you do be hope in everything you do right so when people see you they see hope when people see you they see love yep i would say you know if you want them to be a humanitarian if you want them to care about people i think you have to show them people and you know my parents always told me that jonathan there will be a day when you're grateful for all the things they did for you and i said whatever dad uh but the day has come many times when I appreciate all the things that my parents have done. I mean, I can say, I can sing nothing but praises. I have two, and I, and I, I don't discount it at, or I try not to discount it as much as possible, but I have had two amazing parents. Um, and one of the things that they always made me do is, is volunteer places. Um, and so I had to volunteer at many different places, but they also, you know, they sent me on mission trips. And so I've been, uh, I've done the domestic exchange and the foreign exchange. You know, there's a, a city uh, about an hour and a half north of me that is a rather impoverished city. And so my church would regularly send groups of people to go and just help. And so we would, um, we were not doing these big things. Um, uh, we would just go and, and clean people's houses uh, we would we would build uh, uh, build fences, for people build walls. We would build a- anything that they needed. Ramp. We had one of the most amazing um, amazing experiences I ever had is we got to build a ramp on someone's house so that someone who hadn't left their house in nine years for the first time was able to leave their house. And for me, that was like one of the most heart wrenching things. And and I got to go to Guatemala and and build a church for people that didn't have a church. They were holding their services just uh, as essentially they were able to build four walls and that was it. And so they were holding church services and, and four walled buildings. And more than that, though, we got to build stoves for them, which is one of the most important things, because usually people would uh, uh, in, in this particular city in Guatemala would hold uh, and cook their food over just open fires in trash cans where they would burn sticks and, and rubber and, and feces and other nasty things. Uh, and we were able to give them very high efficiency stoves. And, and when you get to do that, and it doesn't have to be in some third world country, it can be like Nate said, right down the road, there's somebody that needs your help. And so what you must do if you want people to love people is you have to show them real people. And I think if you show them real people, then they will love them because I think uh, it's in most kids' natures once they get to a certain age, once they, once they get over the selfish age, when they become self-aware, I think uh, there's something, there's, there's a reason why Christ says, be like the least of these and, and do not uh, hold the children away from me. Be like a child. He gives many examples. He's not telling us, obviously, to revert back to the age of a two-year-old. There's something about the simplicity the simplicity of their outlook in life and their care for other people um, within reason. Cause you know, you obviously you have the selfish kids as well, but the point is, is when you show people real people, I think their heart breaks for them and they care about them, but they won't ever get that if they never leave their house. 
don't I don't know if I have anything to add to add to that. That's a that's a more than sufficient answer. I would say if I could say just in this example because you asked me as a parent, what would I do? Um, we ask our son to start his own foundation instead of waiting for someone else to do something and having to be having to join someone else's stuff. The question was, well, what do you believe in? So we have this thing in our family called PVP. You hear sometimes the corporations call UVP your unique value proposition. But as a human, I'd ask him, what is your PVP? What's your personal value proposition? What is the thing that if someone stopped you in an elevator and asked you to tell us who you were in 10 to 30 seconds, what would you tell them? And so if you have a PVP, which he has, then part of your PVP and is caring for someone else, how do you demonstrate that and what you do? So as a 14-year-old, he started his own foundation called the Social Just Us League. And to your point, Jonathan, about the least of these, rather than say the least of these, we say the least of us so that we don't distinguish ourselves from people who are living in a certain condition because we understand all conditions are reciprocal, that we are part of a great circle. And so we don't, we decided not to exclude ourselves by using these versus us. So small distinction, but it's a distinction that we use uh, nonetheless. So he started his own foundation as a 14 year old. And that's one one of the things I would say to parents, Uh, you have to walk it yourself. But one of the, one of the better, one of the ways also to do it is to make sure people are responsible for it. It's a different thing when you, someone else have something and you get to join it. Some people like Jonathan will continue because he values it. There's another thing when it's yours and because it's yours now, there's a different level of responsibility of making sure you maintain it. And so that's, that's something we'd ask. We, we'd encourage parents to consider as they're raising children. These, uh, these are amazing things that, uh, there's really not much to say beyond that. The, the, being the being the person, being the representative of love, showing them love, giving them access to showcase their love. These are so there's so many powerful things that are said here. I, I guess the last question uh, before we start wrapping up the show is that you parent for years on end, you know, do the three prongs that you mentioned, always making sure that your kid is adhering to a vision that not only you see, but they also see for themselves. Once they kind of leave the coop, at that point, as your as the parent, what uh, what do you believe at that point you should be thinking? How do you react? I know you said it's kind of their life and you kind of, you know, are along the ride. So can you kind of describe that for people? Yeah, so I have a, sorry, I'm gonna try to answer that question is with a story. Um, my son is 16, my wife and I, my son, we took a trip to, to Vegas. None of us gamble. We weren't having a really great time. It was during the holidays. We would always get away from the for the holidays. So we were, we, we were saying, hey, well, what should we do now? So we rent a car and we drive out to the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. I just finished reading The Alchemist and Timothy Ferris's four-hour work week. This was in the fall, the winter of 20, 2011. My son had also read The Alchemist, and he and I talked a fair amount about what it meant to chase your own dreams. Dreams have always been a big part of, of our of our life. So he and I are standing on the edge of the of the canyon, 3,000 feet above sea level. My wife is behind us yelling and screaming at us to get away from the edge. I'm staring with him saying, hey, man, how do you feel right now? He said, 
great. I said, do you know why you feel great? He said, no, why? I said, because the best parts of life are found on the edge. And he said, I said to you, you know what? He said, Dad, you know what? You're right. And speaking of that and dreaming, next school year, when it's time for him to be a senior in high school, he said, I don't want to go back to high school. I want to chase my dream of playing professional soccer. I need to get out of the country. And six months later, this child moved to Brazil to play professional soccer in one of Brazil's top soccer academies. He taught himself Portuguese in a month so that he could go. And I've been writing him letters since before he was born. But at two, I started writing him specifically. I would write notes. And at two, he asked me for, for, for mail. And I wrote him, started writing him mail. And I kept, we kept many of the letters that I wrote. And I put them in a binder. So when he got to Brazil, I said, I'm going to be 7,000 miles away from you. You're probably not going to want to talk to your father to your point earlier uh, about whether or not, what is it I'm supposed to do once he's essentially flown the coop. I go to Rio for a few days, and I, my wife calls and said, he's not doing well. You're going to have to go back to the academy. I don't think he's going to make it. I go back to the academy to get him to think he's going to come back to America with me. He says, nope, I'm good. I got a question. You put these letters in this binder for me, these 38 letters. Did you put them in any particular order? I said, no, I didn't. He said, I said, why? He said, because I reread the first three letters, and I remember my purpose. I'm going to be fine. But here's what we're going to do, That Whenever I'm done here, we're going to publish these letters and share them with other people. Because I want people to understand what it's like when someone tells you you can do something, and then you know it's going to happen. So fast forward 13 months, he had a concussion. He came home. He published the letters. And it is because he published the letters that I'm here with you today. Because he published the letters, published the book, people start asking me questions today, like you all are, about what it means to be a parent. So that child who I poured into for 16 years now pours back into me equally, but he does so differently. I poured into him as his father. He pours into me as another man. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, that was, that was a pretty powerful story. I got to lie. That was a pretty powerful one. I definitely felt that one. And I do think it's extremely inspiring as well when it comes down to seeing all the all the kind of grind, I guess, all, all the things that you did as a father and to see your son kind of receive everything and show how much he loves you by kind of, like you said, giving back as a man. So there's a lot of power in that. And it hopefully is a, definitely a teaching moment when people read the letters or read your books or listen to this podcast episode and they, they hear these stories and they, t and they think about the role of a parent at the end of the day. It shouldn't be something easy as like, okay, just make sure they, they're alive. Like that's, That shouldn't be the extent <laughs> of what it means to be a parent. It, it should be much more than that. It should be hard. It should be intricate. It should be involved. And you're going to see Don't everything joy. before. And it should Don't be joyful. Joy. We all love family. I mean, I personally, <laughs> I'm sure all of us agree that the, the value of family is unquestionable. So... That that is a that is a powerful story, and I, I do hope that a lot of people got something out of that. Um, not not only the story, but a lot of things you were saying today. Um, anything? Any last words for you, Jonathan? No, I think that's a great story. Um, I think, well, and yeah, I won't. I could go on a tangent about that, but I'm not going to. I think that's a great way to end it. 
Uh, any final words for you, Nate? Anything you need to plug? Uh, Pete, where they where they can find you? All that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I'm 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 simple. You can find me. The easy way to find me is NathanielAturner.com. N a t h a n i e l a t u r n e r dot com. And our books are sold wherever books are sold. And at the end of the show, when you all share with me your your addresses, I'll be happy to send you copies of the books that I've written and and then the last couple books that my son and I've written together. Right, excellent. Make sure to check that out, of course. I really do hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's very interesting to kind of dive into that, and there's a lot of value to um, a lot of things that Nate was saying that, uh, for the most part, in terms of the principles, in terms of how you should parent, in terms of the value of the parenting, and even what comes after, a lot of stuff that, you know, we, we for the most part, agree with. So hope you guys enjoyed. Y'all have a good one. Rated five stars per usual. Leave a review. Take care. And... Well, check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude, even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.